Mike, whose uh, family was well-respected and had lived in the village for generations, walked confidently into church with his wife. As always, he was attending the main Sunday morning service, and they went to their usual seats, and Mike uh, bowed his head in prayer. Mike took his religion very seriously, and he didn't mind who knew it. So regular a churchgoer was he that he knew many of the hymns and set prayers off by heart. He was an active member of the church council and well known for his work with a local charity. In fact, in every way, he was a paragon of the establishment. As Mike, with his wife next to him, reflected on, on his life in those few moments before the service began, he kind of glowed with inward satisfaction. He thought about all he had done for the, the church and the village. He had nothing to feel ashamed about. Nothing. Good grief. Who's that? Out of the corner of his eye, he caught sight, actually, of a familiar figure also from the village. It's Doreen. What on earth is she doing here? And if Mike could have read Doreen's mind, he'd have realized that Doreen was thinking exactly the same. What right did she have to be at church? She'd only ever been at church twice before, once for a funeral and once for a wedding. At the wedding, she'd been decidedly the worst for wear. She half expected the vicar to come and throw her out. See, Doreen knew that she was the scandal of the village. She'd only been in the village for six years, and already in that time, she'd had affairs with as many men. She'd walked into church reeking of alcohol having spent the last half hour with a vodka bottle. See, she'd been trying to drown her sorrows. She knew what a mess she was making of her life. She'd looked for love in all the wrong places. She'd given the impression that she was shameless, but now she was feeling the shame. She'd heard the church bells ringing, and she suddenly remembered someone telling her about God's love for all people. And she wondered whether God could possibly love her. That is why on the spur of the moment, she decided to go to the church. Doreen slunk into the back pew. And the moment she sat down, the the tears started streaming down her face. Oh God, she sobbed quietly. Oh God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Please sort me out. I tell you, Jesus says, it was Doreen who went back home that morning writing God's eyes and not Mike. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. I've retold Jesus' parable just to help us realize how surprising and shocking Jesus' teaching is. It is the exact opposite of what most would expect. The religious person, Mike, is far from God. But Doreen the wayward is close to God's heart. This is the the last of four sermons on prayer. In the first two weeks, we looked at key prayers of David and Moses. 
But then last week, we looked at the uh, parable just before this one, in the first eight verses of Luke chapter 18. And in this parable, Jesus is teaching his disciples about prayer. And we don't have to guess what the, the point of the, or the application of the parable is, because Luke tells us in verse 1. So just turn back a page, you'll see it. The previous parable, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And uh, if you were here last week, you would have seen that the point that Jesus makes in this first parable about a desolate widow seeking justice from an unjust judge is that God is not like an unjust judge and Christians are not like that desolate widow. Now, our God is a God of all justice. He is also a loving Heavenly Father. And so when Jesus returns to this world as God's King, all of God's chosen one, all his precious children who believe and follow Jesus will be quickly vindicated on that day. But we saw last week how Jesus finished his parable with a challenge. Jesus didn't finish the parable by saying, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find people praying? No, he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? See, according to Jesus, the hallmark of a true and living faith is persistent prayer. This is one of the ways we can know whether we are truly trusting God. We keep crying out to him in prayer. And I have hope that those of us who were here last week have been encouraged by that uh, first parable that we looked at to carve out time during this last week to, to pray and, and to keep on praying to our loving Heavenly Father. And the second parable, which we're looking at this morning, the parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector, well, that adds another layer about how we're to approach God when we pray. Now, under the old covenant, the temple was the place where you went to meet with God. And in this second parable of Jesus, two men went up to the temple to pray. So according to what Jesus has said in the previous parable, we expect that these men who are praying to be two men of faith, two men who are relating to God properly. But as the parable shows, that's not the case. And the shock of the parable is that the most respectable, devout, religious one is the one who's got it badly wrong. This parable has two lessons for us, and they both concern our attitudes. And the first one is this. Beware of harboring self-righteous attitudes. Now, Mike is like the religious Pharisee in Jesus' parable. It seems the only reason that the Pharisee goes to the temple is to reassure himself that he's all right. Listen to his prayer. God. That is the only reference to God he makes. The rest is all about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
So he compares himself to all the other people he, he, he despises. And he thinks there's a fundamental difference between them and him. He thinks he's a, he's a breed apart. He, he's not like other people. And then he reminds himself of all the good things he has done. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So he thinks that he's okay with God because of his kind of tangible religious observances. But he's completely deluded. God hates such self-righteous attitudes. Jesus says anyone who exalts himself like that will be humbled. He will go home thinking that God is pleased with him when in fact he's completely out of touch with God. And when he comes to meet God face to face, as we shall all shall one day, God will say to him, I don't think we've, we've ever met, have we? I never knew you. Depart from me. How terrible to be devout and religious and yet out of touch with God. It's a bit like a man with cancer going to the doctor and saying, I want you to know, Doc, that I'm in superb health. My lungs are functioning perfectly. My muscle tone is ideal. My circulation is second to none. I have no infections, ailments, viruses, diseases. In short, Doc, unlike the other miserable specimens I observe in your waiting room, there's absolutely nothing wrong with me at all. So he walks out of the surgery unaware that he's dying. Beware of harboring self-righteous attitudes. Because, friends, it's very easy for us to slip in to having them. So let's look more closely at the parable to see how we could end up harboring self-righteous attitudes. Is there actually the clues there in verse 9? To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. Jesus told the parable. See, those two go together. If we look down on other people, we will tend to be confident of our own righteousness. Now, there is a world of difference between noticing things about people and looking down on people. God has made us relational uh, beings. Just as he is a relational being. We are created in his image. And as relational beings, when actually we meet one another, we inevitably notice things about each other. We notice how people look. We notice, uh, uh, we'll pick up on people's emotional state. We'll pick up on, on people's personality. And we'll notice behaviors and attitudes in each other. That is inevitable. In fact, it's healthy. It's hard to make and maintain meaningful relationships without noticing things about people. But what is unhealthy, what is sinful, is having noticed those behaviors and differences. And yes, that will include failings that we then look down on other people. And friends, we all tend to do it. And the danger for those of us who have had stable moral upbringings, 
and who through perhaps good education, and yes, in some cases, good Bible teaching, haven't fallen into gross and obvious immorality, is that we can look down on other people who have. And so we say to ourselves, well, I would never do that. Well, of course, we most probably would if our upbringing and circumstances were different. Let me come clean with you on one of the ways that I have caught myself harboring self-righteous attitudes recently. Many of us will be aware how there is a, a, a crisis in the Church of England. In fact, there are several crises, which all of which are kind of interrelated. But the one I'm thinking of concerns the recent moves by many churchmen and women to change the doctrine and practice of the Church of England. So that's something the Bible condemns they want to celebrate and bless. Now, I think as a follower of Jesus, I'm right to be really upset about that. And I am very exercised. Those who be, should be uh, promoting and upholding God's standards and truth are condoning sin and leading people astray. But I have at times caught myself looking down on those revisionists with a self-righteous attitude when I should be acknowledging and even more concerned about those areas where I have been sitting loose to God's word. See, friends, when we compare ourselves with other people, we are opening up ourselves to the evil of self-righteousness. Because we're likely to see in other people areas where they struggle and we don't. And we're often blind to our own shortcomings and failures. But when I compare myself to Christ, when I make him the subject of my gaze, when I think about God and what he's revealed about himself and his ways in his word, the Bible, well, then I gain a, a right perspective. Because as far as he compares himself with other people, he cannot see the depths of his own broken and sinful heart. And he compounds his spiritual blindness by taking pride in his religious track record. So beware of harboring self-righteous attitudes. It is a constant danger for all of us. That's my first point. Instead, recognize your abject brokenness before God. And that's my second point. Recognize your abject brokenness before God. See, Dorian is like the tax collector in Jesus' parable. Tax collectors were treacherous uh, traitors. They uh, were cheats. They sided with the, the Roman enemy, the occupying power, and made themselves rich at the expense of their fellow uh, countrymen. They were like, in many ways, like the, the French who collaborated with the Gestapo in occupied France during the Second World War, and they were equally despised. Tax collectors didn't dare darken the door of the temple for the fear of being lynched. But here is a tax collector who has dared to go to the temple because he knows he needs help. 
He feels uh, hollow and empty inside. He knows that he's done wrong, not just to the people he has swindled, he has sinned against God. He's ignored God and is far from him. He wonders whether there's any chance of God helping a person like him, a social outcast. He stands in a corner of the temple and beats his breast and cries into his beard, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And friends, that is a great prayer. It expresses exactly the attitude that God loves, a cry from the heart, acknowledging our need and seeking God's mercy and help. And Jesus says that it is this man that goes home right with God, forgiven, accepted, and loved, despite all he has done. He's like a man who's been trying to carry on for weeks with crippling pains in his stomach. Eventually he can stand it no longer. He goes to the doctor and says, Doc, you've got to help me. I'm in agony. Quick as a flash, he's booked in for tests, and before long he's on the operating table being sorted out. The message of this, this parable is very simple. If we acknowledge before God and other people our, our natural pitiful state, if we confess before God how blind and broken and yes, self-righteous we are. In short, if we humble ourselves before God and one another, admitting we're sinners and that we need God's help, he will. He will help us, he will save us, he will change us. All of us have done wrong. Some of us, like Doreen and the tax collector, may be acutely conscious of it. We've done wrong or are doing wrong to others, but far more importantly, we are, have done wrong and are doing wrong to God. We've lived in his world and ignored him. We've lived in his world and have disobeyed his laws, we've lived in his world as though he did not exist. Others of us may be more like the Pharisee. We are moral and respectable. Actually, sometimes we struggle to see how broken we are. But all of us need to be praying that tax collector's prayer, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Acknowledges that we have wronged God and acknowledges that we need his mercy and his forgiveness. And Jesus, at the end of this parable, assures us that if, like the tax collector, we truly humble ourselves before God, then God will forgive us whatever we have done in the past and will draw us into friendship with himself. How do we know? Well, because Jesus died so that people like you and I and Doreen and the tax collector and even the, the Pharisee, if he acknowledges his sin, his self-righteousness and repents of it, could be forgiven. He died in our place. So the Pharisee in Jesus' parable returned home, religious, proud, unforgiven, far from God. The tax collector, on the other hand, returned home humble, forgiven, God's friend. As I close, let me 
apply this to both our corporate and personal prayer life. Churches, I often say this, churches, we are hospitals for sinners. That's what church is. It is not a hotel for saints. All of us are deeply broken, sinful people. And so it is good that here at All Souls, we follow the kind of Anglican prayer book pattern of having a time of corporate confession near the start of our meetings. We're always to approach God, conscious that we are sinners who come to him empty-handed, needing his grace. And friends, we're also to do that when we're on our own. Remember the point of last week's uh, parable? God wants his precious people, his chosen ones, to be crying out to him in prayer and not giving up. But this week, reminded that as we cry out to God for justice, when we bring our request to him, our needs, that we come before him empty-handed. God owes us nothing, actually, other than hell and judgment. But because of Jesus, because of the righteousness that he has won for us on the cross, we can nevertheless approach God with great confidence, knowing that as we humble ourselves before him, he will indeed forgive us and lift us up.